as we probably sense in terms of doing these retreats, there are meditation practices and varieties of meditation practices, such as mindfulness of breathing, walking, metta bhavana, and so on. And there are particular, we call that a, a theme or a practice, and there are particular techniques that one could adopt within that, such as counting the breaths, um, you know, particular angles one can one can develop. Buddha mostly didn't teach techniques; mostly taught pra- uh, themes and practices. And different Buddhist teachers have different techniques for highlighting or giving one access to those those practices. It can be the case that one in one's eagerness or one's insecurity, one you know collects a whole range of techniques. You know, it's like it's like having six guns in the house just in case. <laughs> um, and essentially, you know, the idea is to find one that one feels comfortable works works for me. Yeah. And without making it into an ideology, this is the only true path kind of thing. <clears throat> so we have these practices and themes which are based around the four foundations of mindfulness for meditation. And that meditation practice sits within a larger context which we might call a process, awakening process, you know, which meditation practices are prime prime movers in, uh, but the, the awakening process is a larger area, and as we settle in, it's good to keep these things in perspective, so we don't mistake the wood for the trees, or in our eagerness or to kind of get going or to get into something, um, leapfrog over parts of what are essential to get in place, to fully awaken to, to be aware of, to feel comfortable with. Processes of awakening, we might say this includes such things as um, sila, which covers the whole area of external um, behavior. And how we develop that in a way which sustains a particular tonality of wholesomeness. And that's very important because um, uh, we can grasp onto sila or grasp onto behavioral um, systems, rules, again from a kind of place of some insecurity, because most of us understand rules are things you get punished for if you don't follow them. You know, so you go and get that feeling about a rule or behavioural thing. This is where I'm seen. My behaviour is where I'm seen. This is where I'm going to get the feedback around my behaviour. So, you know, better get sure I get it right. Otherwise I might get some bad marks or, um, you know, some abuse or punishment. <clears throat> and perhaps if I did it really right, then I might you know, get some reward. 
But a lot of it is basically defensive, defensive behavior, which part of us wants to do, part of us resents um, having to do all this. So very often we can find our psyche kind of wavers between clamping onto rules and rebelling against them. Um, something that wants the sense of feeling okay and stable and, and okay with each other and okay with ourselves. We're, 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 you know, we're not doing that which is you know, polluting our social environment. And yet part of us thinks, God, he's stuck in this thing. <laughs> well, it's particularly probably more a monastic thing where you have all these lots and lots of little rules and you can kind of feel a bit uh, fenced in by it or if you don't know how to handle it. And essentially, um, we look, we can be regarding all this with, with great um, diligence, but not recognizing really the, the tone that we need to get to and the whole purpose of it is to, is to sustain a wholesome tonality of heart. And this is very uh, important for one's own awakening. So it's not just a matter of social niceties or avoiding blame and also avoiding unskillful karma, but really recognizing a wholesome tonality of heart. So Sila is said to be that which means one's heart is free from the twisting of regret and inner muttering and self-criticism. So the heart is free from that kind of um, inability to watch, inability to be with oneself. If we're free from that, then the heart naturally tends to settle and feel we can, heart can fill and swell our whole being. Whereas if we have areas of our behavior which are sources of uh, regret, you can, you, you can taste the, the quality, the acidity of malice or the kind of toxic qualities of, of um, harmful speech or abusing, criticizing, you know, these kind of malicious things. You can't really swell into that just a natural law that something, you know, that, that our essential fullness is can only be achieved through wholesomeness. Like, you know, you find it areas where if you open into them, you, you find your sense tense up with regret <coughs> or not wanting to see that or justifying it or denying it or say, well, he, he hit me first. <laughs> these things, this uh, justification. Um, so being able to relate to the sense of where do I feel I can be ample, you know, uh, and that, the particular tonality, and I think tonality is a reference that I make much of. You know, where, do, where does one feel the sense of settled well-being? I'm okay with myself. This is very important. Yeah. And maybe that's kind of, you know, a bit of a fuzzy reference because it's not, a, it's not really a, like a tactile thing you can grab hold of. It's a whole sense 
Uh, it's a whole sense of uh, like a tune or a whole sense of I feel settled, I feel okay in myself. I feel okay in myself when I'm on my own. I feel okay in myself when I see you. I feel okay in myself when I remember what I've done. I feel okay in myself. You know, there isn't something like, oh, oh, oh. You know, or, or, or trying to deny that or dismiss it. Uh, and you can feel the tonality change when we get into something we regret. It starts to speed up or tighten. You can find yourself tightening up or the mind starts to speed up. And justifications start occurring or we look the other way. And these are the kind of things I can recognize in, in myself. This all rests on certain very important principles of Dhamma, which is that all wholesome karma, it's all wholesome in action, intended action, has a pleasant tone to it. And all unwholesome action has an unpleasant tone to it. This is really nice. Because then you're not looking at what somebody says, or what you think, what you read in the book, you can check in yourself. This feel, how does this, how does this feel with me? And then you know. Oh, that's not good. Let's pull away from that. Let's move away from that. Let's relax that. Let's let go of that. Whatever the thought is, whatever the because you're thinking, one thinking mind can justify anything. It can also criticize anything. I'm sure we're all quite capable of totally demolishing ourselves um, with our critical faculties on one hand, and then probably pretty adept at defending ourselves from other people's criticism. You, know. <laughs> you can't demolish me, this is my job. <laughs> I don't need your help with that. And of course, what ca- what can occur over a period of time is that because of the painfulness of that, the one's mind just dulls out. So we go numb, which is uh, you don't feel tonality anymore, don't refer to it, don't even sense it. We've grown as a sort of shock, a shock that occurs when that system just goes numb. This is a kind of foundational reference for awakening. Go to that. Stay with that. It helps to guide one's behavior in many, many ways. Not just physical behavior or even verbal behavior, but also even the way we think. The way we think about ourselves or others. And, you know, you can feel in terms of the way we live a day when one thinks about oneself and when the lash the lashing starts, or the the wounding starts, and you know the tonality has shifted into something that's sharp or hard or strident, not loving, not compassionate, not open, not you know maybe you seem to have razor sharp clarity to it, and I think this is why one should seek for tonality over clarity. This thought can be exceptionally sharp, you know, clear, convincing, 
and we will believe in it because that's what we literate people we're educated people we believe in thought and words and books we've learned to do that over years and as you it doesn't take long to find out that those words and books can say just about anything <laughs> you know which one do you believe so this, this the tonality is an intimate realizable once by oneself immediate experience it's our gift as humans uh, what it is to be a human being is to be blessed with this particular guide mm. and if you like it's a kind of development of what animals have you know? um, as goes into a moral plane animals are more just on a level of survival <clears throat> where they go into fight flight uh, modes or they're just alert but they're relaxed and then something happens they kind of tense up one or another and they lose, their tone changes so you see that the creature's tonality of bodily tone will suddenly change and it's danger you know, or time to run now we kind of scent that in, in a, a contextual way so we uh, also, um, this tonality is a guide to, to um, how, how in a very broad sense we feel, whether we feel safe. So it's rather like, you know, when you look at a, a, an animal, a rabbit or a cat or a dog, when it doesn't feel safe, when it's just got somewhere, it's looking around, you see it's not, it's not in a restful, relaxed state. It's agitated, it's tense. It's ready to run. So, uh, being able to take that tonal reference that we may have es- established through Sila and take it into something that's not really a level of Sila, but a level of just uh, his one, um, it's called um, Viveka, which means a settled state. Um, he's one in a settled state which is rested, attentive, but restful. Now this, is, uh, this is where the meditation starts with Viveka. So in this whole field of cultivation, of cultivation of, of awakening, the whole awakening process, just to be able to refer to a particular tone of heart, which does incorporate a bodily tone because the body tends to pick up heart tones and the heart tends to pick up body tones. You feel stiff and rigid, sooner or later you start to feel it in your heart. You feel trapped or forced. Um, if you feel trapped and forced in your heart, you start to manifest it physically and so on. And so in terms of... of you know, fitting into a retreat, then this is an area we have to negotiate quite carefully. How do we fit into things that are got very clear times and time to do this and time to do that without, you know, you hear this, that, the other way, feeling the sort of thing that occurs to us when we get rules, you know, guillotine, this time, that time, this time, that time, up, sit down, up, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, 
walks it, eat, walks it, walks it, tea, walks it, walks it, bed, up, you know. <laughs> you know, <they> go, oh. <laughs> but, you know, one says, it makes sense in a way, you've got a hundred people here, we're going to kind of really milling around, um, which could be quite fun, perhaps we could. <laughs> Some sort of organisational thing, where we recognise, well, okay, that's what that's about. But let's not enter that with a, in a in a uh, forced way. But try to relax into that. You know, it's a little bit late. It's not the end of the world. Uh, a little bit late for this, or I missed that. It's not, you know. Well, I know what I'm doing. So I like to really encourage each and every one of us to to find that in ourselves, where we are alert, we're not just spaced out or distracting alert, and yet getting to following the behavioral norms in a way that feels intimate, you know, I feel good with this, I'm okay with this, I feel fine with this, this is, yeah, okay, you know, and even to make effort from a, from a settled state, you know, it's like when you lift, when you're, if you're warming up for yoga or you're lifting weights, you don't just snatch you're going to get hold of something and let your strength build up. And then, you ready? Yeah, now we go. Otherwise, you, you just rip something. So it's often that time when you're starting a retreat, just to touch into the forms, feel yourself with them. Feel how, how, you, how, you, how, that, how that affects you, like a routine or sitting, walking, and realize you have to give it time to warm up to that. And keep with the tonality. And using that same analogy of physical exercise, it's not more is better getting the right quality of filling up a form, gradually filling it up. Then the meditation practices start to arise, start to become quite natural. Here I am, you know, I'm okay here. I'm okay here, I don't feel shut down here. I don't feel driven. I don't feel burdened by all this. You know? So, I'm just sitting here, body, sensations, you know, breathing in and out quality of heart, it, then you can pick which particular theme seems to be accessible and appropriate. Then whichever, whatever you're doing, you know, keeping, coming from that same settled state. So there are times when we might just need to be with that. Times of when one feels quite settled and filling that up, we want to actually put forth a bit of effort to feel our strength, to test our edges, to pick up something and practice with it, work with it, take that on. And then times when we're just rests again. This is the process, meditative process. That, that proper cultivation of you know, warming up and resting, um, then we get into uh, strain, 
or we get into a feeling of compulsion. Do it, do it, do it. More the better. You know. Recognize these meditation practices are like medicine. It's not the more pills you take, the better you get. But what do you need to purge away um, the dross? And when is a purge too strong? So that, in fact, you know, so the medicine is something we can keep taking and find nourishment with. And the nourishment and it always brings us back to the sense of feeling okay with ourselves. And it's important to get that rhythm of it. Otherwise, one can always sense, even with diligent meditation, that you never quite got it yet. Fifteen years. You're not quite there yet. And um, I don't think that's an uncommon thought or realization. Twenty years, still not quite there yet. And there's all these important practices you haven't cultivated. And it looks pretty good over here in this book. And this person who's written this has obviously got it. And this one who doesn't meditate at all got it. So you think, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so it's just, just be with what you are. And you think, oh my goodness. I mean, I've been spending 15 years struggling away for nothing. Um, <laughs> is what is it that creates that sense of, of not quite there yet? Because that's where we started from. We started from not quite here yet. And we didn't actually explore that. So we started from not quite here yet. And we took that not quite here yet. And we developed it. Into <laughs> <laughs> and we gave it, you know, we gave it some new frills. And, and, um, but it still amounts to the same creature. But it's now it's got more refined um, trappings to it. You know. We can give it technical terms now. You know. I haven't realized this fruit or this attainment or I haven't got to this jhana or something. That we can kind of add little decorations to the basic sense of not good enough yet, not good enough yet. Um, And there's a... hmm. So we haven't actually, first of all, almost settled in ourselves saying there is a it's not to say that there's nothing to be developed, but to recognize there is, you know, there's a potential for me. Yeah. There's a brighter for me. There's a clearer for me. It's for me. You know, it's not something I've got to get. But it, it's, it's that possibility one can unfold, one can open into that. It comes towards us as we stay in our settledness and we begin to feel the waves of the vipaka, of the, of the inherited karma, the waves of sensuality, the waves of regret, the waves of fear, the waves of doubt. And instead of being caught in those currents, we're settled enough to stand our ground. And they wash over, but we become increasingly more stabilized within our settledness. And that has a very powerful effect. Things don't stick. And the strategies whereby we actually embed our trappedness and uh, make a whole life out of it 
those strategies begin to unravel. The strategies are things like fixing the waves. Let's get the iron out and wave and flatten those waves. Um, one is duck the waves. Uh, one is deny that they're here. <laughs> you know, there's something wrong with me if there are waves occurring. So there's some sense of trying to find a place where they don't happen. So one isn't actually fully releasing these karmic currents. One doesn't have a ground to do so. And it's almost like, a, <clears throat> you know, biological, if you like. I mean, it's a fact that's that, that's that embedded that you cannot release unless you have ground. It's like if you don't have your feet on the bottom of the, of the riverbed, there's no way in which you can actually fully, you know, stand against that current. It just cannot happen. You can splash around in it, um, and so on. But you can, so we, uh, these are ways in which we can uh, not feel some of the discomfort of that. But it doesn't mean that we've actually stood against that, or been able to stand against it. One of the advantages of, of group practice, Kalyanamita, is to have a set sense in which this, this, um, these aspects of karma are acknowledged and no longer shamed. Be able to say, you know, we experience the hurt and the craving and the doubt, and these are not kind of blemishes in some fault-finding way. These are like... Um, Things that, that we inherit. Yeah. So to take away the sense of moral stain over what is not really a behavioral um, issue, it's an essential issue, it's an issue of essence. That is, it, it, these are things that get conditioned into us through birth, through misunderstanding, through confusion, through socialization. Um, and the socialization process is one where we're able to maybe compensate and collude and deny and distract from this primary um, pain, confusion. So, you know, the first noble truth is, is, is supposed to be a kind of like, almost like a relief. There's nothing wrong with you, but there is this. This um, um, unsatisfactoriness, this stressfulness. It's not, you know, you screwed up. <laughs> Although we can take it that way. So the gro- grounding, which begins with sila and taking refuge, means we're able grounding in a, in a wholesome tonality. This is what, this is where I, I stand. This is where I make, take my stand. And feeling, really feeling that out, both as a mind tone, where the mind feels supple, workable, malleable, bright, 
fit, ready. There's a bodily tone, the body feels malleable, supple, bright, fit, workable. There's a heart tone, one's heart feels uncramped, abundant, able to radiate, do what a heart should do when it's not in shock or in fear or in shame. This all is the, um, when we, the Buddha talks about Viveka, he says this is something that comes through putting aside the covetousness and dejection around the world. The world is essentially a, the, that which is con- conditioned through sense, the sense contact. It's not sense contact itself, what gets conditioned through it. That is the modalities of um, reaching out, um, pushing away, uh, being agitated by. This is the world, worldly dumbness, gain, fame, um, dishonor, happiness, unhappiness, um, so on. These, these things where one gets kind of thrown out there, seeking, seeking the, um, the sense of comfort or okayness in something that's actually we have no real say over. So something that's always, you know, reaching out for it somewhere else. And, and the more we do that, the more we, um, you know, build up the belief that it's not here. You know, fun is something that you buy. You don't have it. You go out and get it because it's not here. Um, so these, this is the worldly dhammas. And they're, they're in, um, in big, going big time now. <clears throat> So Viveka is, is both the putting aside of that and what enables us to put that aside is to feel uh, this innate quality of refuge in ourselves, in our own presence and process. Now there are uh, many complexities around what... Uh, uh, where we lose this. Obviously, in, in, to a degree, this can occur through sense contact. A lot of this occurs for us in psych- more psychological terms. Uh, is, uh, we can idolize others. So this, in a way, displaces. You know, we just idolize. Doesn't mean, you know, be fond of or admire or or, be, or feel joy and gratefulness. No, it's very, you know, this is very nice that you're in this state, lovely, great, whatever, you know, whatever it is, or to enjoy it. But to just think, you know, that's other than me. That's something other than me. And and uh, idolizing it. We can also feel ourselves being intimidated, and that the two kind of hinge. Very often, someone, you know, we like a teacher. You can both admire and also feel intimidated by. The sense of it is up there. We can think. We can think in terms of um, success and failure. These psychological uh, references. 
And that takes us away from presence. Because, you know, how can you succeed at presence? But if you succeed, then sooner or later you must fail. You can't, you know, because success itself is like a peak, isn't it? Whereby success is only one number one. So once we get into succeeding, then you kind of create this topography of success, which is a peak. And who is the most successful person? So in a way, if I need to do that, I've got to remind myself what failures you are. <laughs> so, that, you know, or you know, this kind of thing where we're in this dualism. So success and, of course, failure are, not, are also um, structures, psychological structures that take us away from that quality of 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 presence, of settledness, viveka. Also non, called non-attachment or detachment. Um, particular way I, I use language, um, I find you know, Viveka is the Pali word. There are certain, certain language structures that go to the head. Um, so detachment is very much a, what I call a head term. And settled back is the term I tend to use, because that to me has got an embodied tone to it. I can feel that. Detachment, I don't know what that feels like. I get a vague, sort of spacey, unconnected thing when it's sort of detached. Something that happens to retinas. It's when, you know, some, something's broken or snapped and it's floating free. But as an actual somatic experience, I don't... You know, I, I do quite a bit of that, kind of detached, floating, free thing. <laughs> but I, I call that dissociation now. <laughs> what I tend to do when I get in a jam. <laughs> sort of, um, you know, panic, uh, not me, not him, not really here, you know. <laughs> so I don't want to just, you know, do language thing, because whatever works, really, but for my, I'm just used bringing up the term settled back to imply a quality of, of really rested, and it's a, a settled back, which not means that you're not unaware of things, but things are not bedding themselves into you. You have your own core, and you can abide with that and rest in that, and stuff can just come, you know, be experienced, be felt, and you can respond to it, or whatever, you've got some freedom there. Essentially, one isn't reached out to try to find the good stuff or, you know, with, so withdrawn because everything out there is toxic. It's either contracted inwardly or, or clutched outwardly. And it's, it's the avoidance of those two measures which can be affected either through the sense doors or through the, mar- through the mind door you know, where we're sinking into states of abjection or reaching out into hyper states of aims and ideals and projects and achievements that we should make particularly you know in the next nine days because if you haven't you know reached out and got something in the next nine days then you will be a 
you know, a failure or have failed. So we can set that up, you know, um, or we can start dismantling it, nasty little creature. We can start dismantling that from day one and keep dismantling it. And in a way, Viveka is both the entry to the practice and in some ways a kind of a continual tone to refer to. Uh, Is there something wrong now for you? Is there something wrong now? Not to say there shouldn't be anything wrong, but to say, what's the wrongness? I should be doing something. I should be feeling something. Okay, so just sense that I should be, I should be, I probably won't be, I should be. Okay, now just sense that. How do you feel? Well, shoulders are starting to move towards the ears. The kind of quality of constricting across the throat. The feeling of numbness going into my brain. Then there's a sort of restless drive to get on with something. Is this what we call a wholesome tonality? Do you feel, can you rest with that? Just try resting from that place. Bodies here, breaths here, spaces here. And you just felt a wave and felt it push you and then rest and let the wave pass. Those are the kind of, that's a wave experience. The wave of I should be. And the sense of going, it's called the bhava, becoming. The wave of becoming. I should be, let me be, I should get to. And this is one of the primary um, asava or outflows, is the outflow of becoming. So this one, it keeps pushing in various ways. And uh, what we need to know is, is not that it shouldn't be here, but just how to hold, well, hold our own intimate ground and let that one pass. Don't give it any anything to feed on. Don't get your surfboard out, you know, start cruising on it. Because you can. We can become all kinds of things. Interesting things, exciting things, new things. Um, But the waves just keep coming in. The more one does that. And, of course, the, you know, what the, the... repudiation of these outflows of these asavas is considered to be the the sum total of the practice. All our practices, all our themes, all our techniques are aimed towards this. You know, so one must be careful about using practices and techniques that might get that we get employ or that wave employs the becoming wave. It starts to hire meditation as a way of auth- or giving a little more authenticity. Meditation was bound to develop because we are developing beings. Like you can't say to yourself, I must get older, it happens. And, and meditation is like that, it's a natural uh, maturing through the disbanding of, of Disease, distress, clinging, craving, ignorance, it just naturally blossoms.
from that. So what's wrong in the present moment is a good little reference, just to not to say there's nothing wrong, but how do you feel that? And is there a, do you have a, a tone for that? Does it feel agitated? Does it feel fearful? Does it feel sad? Sense of grief. I'm not this yet. I never will be. Or the impatience. Hunger. For something to have achieved. Something to remember. Something to have got hold of. Very primary quality. Viveka is um, both the entrance to the practice, it's one way of summarizing in a kind of fairly easy fit term the results and the abiding tone that one should refer to and keep in mind, keep in heart, keep in body. It's the, these three references, um, body, heart, and uh, mind, um, Partly because you get you can even get the whole sense of it. The thinking mind um, can dissociate so quickly, and uh, we're gifted at that. One is able to sit somewhere and think and be completely unaware of the body, or only aware of the body in a very residual way. And we're we're all quite learned at that and encouraged to do that. Read, look at the movies, and you're gone. You've gone into whatever that particular story is about. I mean, rather like that. And so, so that we tend to use that particular faculty for apprehending all experience. It's the one we're good at. It's the one that's kind of encouraged. You, know, you walk into a math class, you don't feel out how pi, pi r squared feels as a bodily experience. It doesn't mean anything. So that kind of abstraction, <coughs> uh, philosophy, spirituality, in these terms. Remembering you know, the Buddha taught mindfulness of body as, a, as the entry to, to meditation practice. So then we get the whole sense. And in this sense, I mean body essentially is a somatic experience. So the as we know, you know, the body can be in, in Buddhist um, spirituality is seen in two senses. One is the sense that one withdraws from, which is the body as um, you know as external form, and the particular um, you know cust, um, training or learning or, or around that which is the excitement over physical form, passion over physical form, disgust over physical form, seeking something in a physical form, you know, which is of the nature to be physical form is changeable, you know, it's plastic, 
it's um, subject to disintegration. So this. But also the Buddha is saying, within this body, there is the end of all suffering. In this body and consciousness and perceptions, there is the end of suffering. And within this bodily abiding, there's a place of bliss and ease. So the meditator is someone who can feel, saturate their whole body with a quality of well-being. And this is a somatic body, which is more like an energetic, we say there's an energetic reference to that, Um, there's a tonal reference to that. And you very well know, you know, that particularly in heightened emotional states, the body um, somatically resonates with that. As we feel angry, the body flares. When we feel depressed, the body contracts. When we feel unhappy, you get a kind of churny feeling in, in the stomach. Maybe tears come out of the eyes. And particularly energetic flushes run through the body. And this is quite accessible to an ordinary experience. And maybe we don't make much of that. In meditation, you can attune to you know, that as a fairly continuing, ongoing tone, bodily tone. Um, in walking, in standing, in sitting, particularly mindfulness of breathing is, is very good for that. But we might notice even just sitting, how does one's sense of being here as an embodied experience, when does that become okay with ourselves? This is, so, kaya viveka. It is essentially a feeling of comfort that occurs in the body, and it's associated with being out of the the social um, melee, uh, where the external forms of the body are the things that tend to be responded to what you look like, what you're wearing, and this kind of stuff. So this is simplified, of course, but that's the, that's the one, one sense of that. Now we can recognize, of course, that even if we are out of the social um, scene, we can still carry that particular patterning. Not that we're necessarily, you know, looking at ourselves or dressing ourselves up, but still perhaps feeling the results of that. And the results of that maybe is a sense of the body is not quite good enough. Which is a very strong message that comes across through the body industries, fashion industry, uh, and so on. You know, there's only a few people who look good enough and you're not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and of course you keep changing that just in case you start to get to look like one of those shift the model around a bit you know, with the right kind of clothes and, and the car is an extension of the body Jitta Viveka is second which, means, uh, which is the sense of being settled in the heart free from or, or um, not engaged with those uh, grasping tendencies or hindrances. And these are um, associated with confused energies, hindrance of, of reaching out, this is sensuality, sensual thirst, hunger. Yeah. 
not for the thing in itself, but for what it means. And this is, of course, the, the weirdness of it. Um, we don't really hunger for food as something. Food as something to just stop the pain of hunger is one thing. But so often people are actually reaching out for a meaning in it. You know, this means comfort, this means deliciousness, this means lavishness, this means specialness, this means this. So we, we reach out for a meaning in sensuality, in sense terms, not for actually what the thing provides. And of course, it's, so this particular confusion which comes to the whole feeling of reaching out, and we reach out through a sense door to something that we, is in this way, is felt to be that which will give me meaning, value, well-being, comfort, okayness, um, liked by others, feeling okay. Um, and as we recognize that um, industries provide all kinds of really tri- trashy stuff <laughs> to reach out for. I was at Niagara Falls the other day, and um, as we came out of this um, particular we want a little boat, we come out of the boat, and they send you, in order to get out of the place, you've got to go through this huge shop. And you think, well, you know, how can you sell Niagara Falls? Can you have a Niagara Falls ashtray, a Niagara Falls sticker, <laughs> Niagara Falls spoon, Niagara Falls key ring, Niagara Falls teddy bear, you know, <laughs> and all these things that you can have that, uh, what do you want to... You want a Niagara Falls teddy bear for? Um, it <laughs> I mean, nothing to do with Niagara Falls. It's just water pouring over an edge of a rock. So <laughs> it sort of helps to cement that particular experience. So you can look at your teddy bear and remember Niagara Falls, maybe, or I don't know. But this stuff, you think, what is this about? What is this about? And this is everywhere. We come through Heathrow Airport to come here. And again, you have to walk to this huge shopping mall. You cannot avoid this shopping mall. There's no, you know, pathway straight through this huge shopping mall. And it's not like shops, it's actually you are in a shop. <laughs> and uh, it's stuff everywhere. You know. um, ties, cufflinks, perfumes, this, that, and the other. What is, what is all this? What's it going to provide for people? To make one feel okay in the social world. That's the meaning. Get this and you'll be okay. That's the entire meaning. You don't really want to smell like a daffodil. (laughs) You just don't want to smell like a human, that's all. Because that's not okay. You're going to smell like a daffodil or a geranium or something. Um, (laughs) That's okay. So this is karma karma-raga, sense-desire. And it's really, the tragedy of it is, it's a search for a kind of meaning. It's not there shouldn't be a meaning. It's not that life is just a thing to be going to oblivion over and try and just ignore. But that the meaning is not there. The meaning is here. So if we approach karma-raga, this sense is like from a wrong perspective, we try and kind of annihilate all meaning, annihilate all contact, annihilate all the sense bases, so they don't exist anymore. 
and I'll be in some kind of void, um, then this is going to this is you're losing the, you're losing the whole losing the tone losing the, the script as it were. And there is meaning, there is joy, there is sense of fullness, there is richness, there is happiness, and it, it's here. It's in your own presence. It's not not out there. And you're not wrong to seek it, either. But just realize, if you're seeking out there, you can, it's a long, arduous path, and it doesn't really, doesn't really work. But the seeking's fine, and the meaning's fine. Just to know the right place for that. And it takes cultivation when one's receptors have been twisted or turned in the wrong direction, or have grown um, occluded. We can't pick up our own, our own value, our own meaning. Ill will is that which is both about um, malice, but also um, it's the contracted state. Where instead of contracting outward uh, to grab something, you contract to, to shrivel. It's a shriveling quality, pickled, bitter, sour. Um, so this is uh, guilt, shame, malice, aversion, fear, mistrust. <clears throat> all these things, all aspects of this. Um, and uh, we bear a lot of that in ourselves. In, it doesn't take you long as a, uh, in meditation to hear the, the inner critic, the inner tyrant, tyrant which is the internalized aspect of one's own ill will, or of ill will, which is always moaning about you. Um, uh, or assuming other people are moaning about you, finding fault with yourself, or assuming other people are finding fault with yourself, or in a strange way, lessening yourself and raising others. And these are the, the kind of ways in which ill will works, the end result of it is always a sense of, of um, inadequacy. And when one carries that, one actually becomes inadequate because your, your own vitality starts to get choked by it. Well, this, is, this is a killer. It will. Hmm. How to resist the inner critic, the inner tyrant, stand one's ground. Play with the inner tyrant. The inner tyrant sets up impossible tasks for you to achieve so that once again you can fail and be confer- your inner tyrant will be confirmed in his opinion of you. So, you know, when we begin to resist that, setting up these aims and ideals. And the main aim and ideal is to resist the inner tyrant. Just to give ourselves that chance to not judge, not react, to feel, what am I feeling now, in that sense? Don't feel that clear, low energy. Uh And... (laughs) Well, it should be another way, or it's uncomfortable, it's painful, 
then this is, say, you know, this, is, this is just called unpleasant feeling. It doesn't have to be compounded by your will. Dullness is the, um, is the, if you like, the, the um, freeze mechanism where we, um, from, uh, it's a way of kind of cutting out from the pain of being here with these other, with these waves coming in. It's kind of, it's a, almost like a defense system. We dull out um, from the pain of, of, of being here, sense contact of of uh, what that brings up in us, of presence of other people, what that brings up in us, of being in a routine, what that brings up in us, feeling trapped, feeling forced. When you've got to do something we can't do, again, it's a pretty natural response. It's got to blank out. Um, it's also something that, that starts to have an effect on one's whole bodily energies, subtle energies. If we, if we um, respond to the, to the ambiguities and the uncertainties of experience, or even the edginess of it, the slightly testing or conflicting edge of it, we, we begin to strategize a way of just, that's all right, you know, don't feel it. Um, backing away from that, uh, then, then dullness starts to set in, almost as a way of life. And it affects one's, one's bodily energies. Because if you're, if you're fully embodied, there's a quality of vulnerability about that. Why, we, in a way, we have to create a very safe place here so that we can expose our, our bodily sense, uh, our vulnerability, delicacy of being. So it wakes up and gradually strengthens. The opposite strategy to that is to, is to close down and dull out. And what occurs is the particular centers in the body start to go out of alignment. You know, the lower center, the, 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 you get this collapse in the abdomen and the collapse in the chest and the collapse in the throat, collapse in the head. I feel all right, though. <laughs> <laughs> because, it, you know, it, it sort of feels, you know, it's a way that one doesn't think this because it's become... You know, it's more primary than thought. It's become almost like a bodily mechanism for survival in conflict or pain or indecision. When things are too much for me, things are too weird for me, I feel too exposed. So here particularly just learning to, to line up the bodily centers so the body is upright and open and making that the, the, a foundational practice for meditation rather than any particular, even particular mental clarity. 
practice getting to bodily energy and letting the mists and the fog um, evaporate takes time this is the hypo state the undercharge the other states uh, tend to be overcharged restlessness is another overcharged state uh, whereby um, one isn't exactly it kind of fits in all the others but it's like one isn't really one can't find something to get hold of you can't kind of really crystallize a really juicy craving so it's like um, a sense of instability restlessness it's a lack of having a core so the mind judders around don't feel settled yet restless Um, again a bodily reference here is very useful just just trying to develop patience around the simple presence of the hands the head standing walking meditation just being with that it's rather like creating a particular um, rhythm and tone that the mind gradually is attracted towards because it feels settled and calm Doubt is the, uh, the fifth hindrance, and this is the one of, um, this is the kind of big daddy of them all, actually. It's, because <laughs> it doesn't just mean, you know, I don't know what's the capital of Niagara, of um, Nicaragua. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a fundamental doubt in one's being. It's like having no ground. I, 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 uh, 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 <laughs> the floor falls away so uh, it can be a very serious state where, whereby um, you know, a person becomes extremely depressed because they have no, no ground but it's almost like your value leeches away your value in yourself is, is drains away and you feel vacuous ungrounded um, unresourced, no strength, uh, no direction. And this is the kind of result of all the others, it's kind of what they all build up to, they gradually cut away uh, one's wholesome tone, one's, one's core value in various ways. You get left in this um, shell like, vacuous state of doubt. <coughs> and then one just kind of reaches out, clutches onto something if there's anything to clutch on to. Uh, so this is the way these particular um, waves, asava outflow waves, can formulate things that, um, that carry us off. And they're, they're, they're experienced both in terms of heart and also have bodily references to them. The body is quite a good way of holding the heart out of the waves, or holding it steady in the waves. It's being able to sit with one's restlessness or walk with one's restlessness. Um, feel, draw oneself in terms of the, the outflow, outpull of the senses, just coming back to you know, what the actual sense bases themselves in what the eye sees. And there's the eye, isn't there? The eye, this is a visual experience. So we're attracted out to something that we see, just acknowledging 
But what you see is just a visual thing. You can't touch what you see. You can only see it. So, you know. You touch it, something else. You know, seeing a banana is a different experience from squeezing it between your fingers. So what, what actually, so we begin to recognize where does that, what's the sense base in which that derives from, and then just going back to this is the seeing of it. And we come back into the eye and into the body through that particular door. Essentially that those, the sense doors, we can acknowledge the conditioning and the pull out through those. Um, and we, as we come back through those, we come back to the, the embodied presence. Mm-hmm. So it's like they are, they, they, we can either flow out through them or come back in through them. So what I'm suggesting is one reference is what I call easy contact. Which is just seeing is seeing. And one almost like rests on that. You don't have to probe into it or pull away from it. Just let the seeing be seeing. Colors, lights, forms, shapes. You can feel kind of little charges of interest or, or you, know, you know, whatever it was pulled. You can feel the pulling away or the pulling back from. But just resting on it. Resting on the sense contact rather than reacting to it. So that's you know, one way of contemplating uh, jitta viveka. Upadi viveka is the upadi viveka, is the third aspect. And this deals with certain subliminal, very potent, powerful uh, forces. These are the, the outflows themselves. Um, they, upadi literally means that the it's translated as substrate, which doesn't mean anything to me. But you could say it's the, the bottom layer. And it's the layer that, um, about which all the other stuff gets built. And it's the layer that carries us through into birth after birth after birth. So we, we, can, you know, we get different formulations based upon that. But it's the basic layer of that which seeks to become something, to have something, to, to you know, crystallize around things that which um, seeks um, to find union or um, in, in a sensory realm in the sense spheres and that which is uh, um, caught up in the misunderstanding the wrong view of self as a dislocated um, entity So we can recognize a lot of our behavior operates in those terms. Probably, particularly the, the bhava, the sense of being, being about to be something, the need to be something, and um, the sense of dislocated self, which is a, an interesting um, riddle, you know, one of the great riddles, isn't it? Who am I? And the answer, however, it's modulated, tends to be, um, you know, I'm something that exists out of context. I'm a kind of 
something that can exist out of context. I can be separated from everything else. You know, I can be separated, I'm going to heaven, Nibbana, wherever you like, you know, wherever it's going to be, but essentially we kind of come out of context and into, into something, some other context or, or have no context at all. And where, where does this self live? Well, it's dislocated, it doesn't live anywhere. It kind of hovers around. Sometimes it flits into a body, sometimes it flitters through a sensation. Most often it kind of hangs around the mind states. I'm this, I'm not this. It's kind of, it's, it's, but we're trying to find where it is. All we know is it's somewhere around here. It's always around here. But where? I don't quite know where it is, but it's always around. And it's a peripheral thing that's taken to be a central thing. It's a kind of um, a reading. It's a kind of resultant reading, an organizing thing that occurs in relationship to experience. Um, yeah, it's, it's understood to be the center of experience. And this is what dislocates it. <clears throat> that is, I can say, I am hungry. There is hunger, and then the I am says, hey, this is, this is you know, highlight this, this is important. So it's a useful thing to, to it's a peripheral thing, that is it, it's added on to experience to say, hey, this is the bit, right? You know, I am tired. This doesn't mean there is tiredness. So what? I am tired. You know, this is important. Underline this. <laughs> Get it? This is the bit. You know, I am lonely. You know, I am sad. So it's a kind of concomitant that gets added on to experience to kind of say, this is the bit to respond to. Not there's a tree in the room, not the sunlight through the windows, not there's, you know, this that I am this. This particular experience is the one I'm going to highlight. And so it adds to that. And that has its functions and uses, but it is very much that. And when it's taken as a centrality, then the whole shooting match starts, doesn't it? Because then the highlight is. What am I going to be? You know, this is the important bit. I am. I need. I want. I must. I mustn't. You know, starts firing off all kinds of messages. Um, that instead of being, uh, you know, a response to experience, it starts the want experience. So, you know, viveka or party viveka is the ability to stay settled back from that, and this is. You know, this is major stuff. This is big time stuff. Because it isn't as easy as just saying, don't do it. <laughs> you know, or you're naughty because you do it. It doesn't quite work like that. One has to, in a way, heal. So we don't need that to do that anymore. That need is not there. And this is the paradigm of practice, that the sense of, of restraint or collectedness only goes hand in hand with having real needs fulfilled, the need to be present. We don't have to be anything, but we do need to be present. That's a real need. 
Without that, we're just kind of rattling around confused. And I may need to be present by saying, hello, you know, what's happening? So I need to be present with, with this context, which includes everybody here, in some way or another. And so do you. You've got to kind of know his personal history, but you need to feel some sense of, I'm, you know, I'm present with this, all this. If you don't feel that, you don't, that doesn't happen, then there's that um, sense of restlessness or instability occurs. We need to feel nourished. Yeah. Two hours to go. Um. <laughs> Uh, and you know nourishment means uh, I can get what I what what supports me this is a something to just realize it has to be met somehow and of course we don't just need physical food we need um, you know we need air Um, we need to feel a sense of joy and realize that these Physical food provides a particular kind of energy, bodily energy. But then energy for the heart, you know, energy for that process. Joy, um, interest, um, freedom, ability to investigate, sense of inquiry, sense of authority. These things, I think, are, are, are nourishing for us. And without those, we start to wither. And... You know, uh, most of us, I imagine, are, are, are good enough at surviving on little nourishment. We develop will and determination to survive without being nourished. In a way, that kind of is, is our last bit of nourishment. I can at least get some nourishment out of the feeling I'm doing my job. <laughs> Even though it kills me, I'm doing my job. <laughs> so there's a little kind of perk in there somewhere. Of, of self-esteem. And that kind of ethos, which can go into meditation, and I suppose this is particularly the case in renunciate life, where you're not supposed to need anything, as long as you do your job. And you get a sense of some quality of, of nourishment comes from the sense of esteem that one gets over being able to do one's bit. Sit like a rock, you know. Um, walk like a rock, talk like a rock. <laughs> you, know, you know, good monk doesn't need anything at all. So, but then you know, you see, realize you just once just kind of condensed all one's needs into one little thing, you know, just to be a rock. Um, so we don't actually um, get out of this issue. We just, we just. Um, condense it into particular places. And to be undeluded about that is not to say you shouldn't, you know, you want to be a rock, fine. And there's times for that. And that can be a nourishing, lovely thing to do if you're you're in control of it. Say, you know, I want to be this. I'm full full with this. But to to, to just be clear that one is fulfilling a particular need. And maybe, you know, there are ways in which that can be fulfilled. It don't mean you have to continually, you know, operate 
on one on one on that particular faculty. We need to have the so the sense of loving kindness towards oneself. We need that that is the essence of nourishment, kindness, compassion for oneself, for this being, bodily, emotionally, psychologically, the whole bit. And taking that into presence, not into fantasy objects, but just into the presence as one is. It doesn't have to be perfect to be liked and to be regarded as worthy of nourishment. Doesn't have to achieve anything to be worthy of being nourished. Doesn't have to become anything in order to be worthy of sense of respect and care. So in, in this we find certain themes naturally arise, mindfulness of body, walking, standing, sitting, breathing, practice of loving kindness, compassion, uh, practice of investigation, um, understanding hindrances. These, all these things fit in, into place, but I'm suggesting this wide view as something to settle, settle in with, so that we really settle back into the process of awakening. 